You seek the key, but first you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system, up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant, with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Okay, let's do some quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. That's obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. To reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. Here's the thing. Information is power. Information is money. Literally, the currency of today's world of, of entrepreneurship is information. And if you could bring all of the, your, the information about your business into one dashboard, this is incredibly valuable. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of the truth about your business. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all of your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. This is so valuable. You just hit a button and you can see all the information about your business instead of having to like call five different departments and get all these emails and put it all together and make sense of it. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. A lot of great things are happening in the world. So many industries growing exponentially. I have on Peter Diamandis, once again, author of books like Abundance and Bold. And I have on Salim Ismail, author of Exponential Organizations. Together, they made Exponential Organizations 2.0, and they're going to do a whole seminar on how to do it. But I get the preview of that seminar, and you'll be able to go to the seminar as well for free. They talk about how the world is growing exponentially and how soon there's going to be billion revenue companies created by as little as three people. How do you do that? Why is that happening? How you personally could change your life into an exponential life? Here's Peter and Salim, Exponential Organizations 2.0. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is The James Altucher Show. So welcome once again, Peter Diamandis. You've been on my show like 10 times, so many great books. And Thank you. Salim Ismail, you're the author of Exponential Organizations, but now you guys are co-authoring Exponential Organizations 2.0. Uh, what's the subtitle again? I always forget subtitles. It's the new playbook for creating 10x growth and impact. And as I was reading your first book, which has sold over a million copies and describes so well how organizations and companies be and how society has become exponential. Peter, it really reminded me of your book, Abundance, I think written around the same time, which showed this optimistic and, and very prophetic view of, of humanity, which is that because of all these exponentially growing technologies, life is going to be just much better. And you go into that more deeply in this Exponential Organizations 2.0. Yeah, we're, we're living in a different world these days, and people have to realize it, and it's not your father's old business world. You know, exponential technologies, computation, sensors, networks, AI, robotics, 3D printing, synthetic biology, AR, VR, blockchain, all these technologies on their own and in convergence are reinventing 
life and they're reinventing how you build and run companies. And it's extraordinary. And the ability to take what used to be scarce and make it abundant. And so many examples, and we'll talk about it, but you know, for us, it's really about how we are building new companies uh, for the next you know, decades ahead. Yeah, and, and the decades prior, because you look at the past 20 years and we've seen linear companies like, like Kodak, for instance, go bankrupt and out of nowhere, photo companies like Instagram be worth billions. And the same, you know, that's just one classic example, which you mentioned in, in your first book. And of course, there's Google, Airbnb, Uber, Palantir, so many companies that using the, these exponential growth techniques have become multi-billion, even trillion dollar companies over the past 20 years. Like it's amazing how fast these companies have, have grown in terms of the history of corporations. And that means industries are growing exponentially too, not just companies. What's changed? <laughs> a lot. Salim, why don't you take it first? Yeah, so uh, James, we, we put the first book together, and Peter was a deep collaborator in that first book in 2014. It was actually built on abundance in that thinking. Because when you think about business, almost all business for 10,000 years is focused on scarcity, right? If you didn't have scarcity, you didn't have a business. And we're seeing new, a new breed of organization emerge that's actually based on abundance. Uh, Airbnb tapping to an abundance of extra bedrooms lying around or Uber tapping into cars that are sitting around 94% of the time. And essentially what this book did in 2014, it laid down the organizational paradigm of how do you organize for business models around abundance? And that was the starting point. We now have 10 years of data on, on case studies on how people have used this model and the benefits behind it. And there's a really important economic thesis that underpins all of this, which is has to do with demand and supply. You, you're optimizing for both if you're building a business, obviously, and hopefully you're on the right side of that equation. The internet came along and did something interesting. It allowed us to drop the cost of demand exponentially, right? Online marketing, referral marketing, uh, every Silicon Valley company is trying to go for an, a viral loop. And that actually brought the cost of acquisition down to near zero. In the exponential organization world, these EXOs, as we call them, have learned how to drop the cost of supply exponentially. So if you take Airbnb, the marginal cost of adding a room to their inventory is near zero. If you're Hyatt, you have to build a hotel, right? And same thing with Waze. And so there's this entirely new breed of companies that are coming into legacy marketplaces with a very low marginal cost of supply, which is an existential threat for the incumbents. It's so fascinating because you're right. I didn't think of it that way, but... Every other company beforehand, there was scarcity. Like, oh, we need a McDonald's because there w if I was on a long driving trip, there wasn't really enough food along the way. Like, I couldn't turn off a rest stop and exactly. find a restaurant. Or almost everything. It's like I have to go to the store because I don't have enough nails or hammers. I got to go to the store and find a store that has a hammer in it. But now, right. like you say, with Airbnb, millions of homes are empty sometimes if the, if the owner's on vacation or if that's a second home or if they even have an extra room, there's millions of empty rooms. And Airbnb, yeah. and Airbnb owns none of those rooms. That's a key part of your exponential organizations is that these companies don't own the, the assets that they sell. And that's a fascinating part too. They, they've organized and created an interface to the abundance, but they don't own the abundance. And, and the rationale for this comes from Peter's six D's framing, which you may have heard. You digitize and then you go into a deceptive phase, then you disrupt it and you democratize and you demonetize and you dematerialize, right? What does dematerialize mean? Dematerialize, my friend, is that you don't have a Kodak camera around your neck anymore. It's become an app on your phone. So your collection of records and books are not physical things. They become apps and data on your phone. So we're talking about turning atoms into bits. And when you turn atoms into bits, the cost of replicating those bits is near zero. The cost of transmitting them is near zero. So the marginal cost is near zero. And they can go every place. And that's changing the world at an extraordinary rate. And so the whole idea of an exponential organization is a new type of company it's been around and it's they're becoming more and more dominant. And our goal here is to teach entrepreneurs who are starting a company, like if you're going to start a company now, you really, there's, you know, there's uh, 11 things you need to do 
that all these exponential organizations have proven over and over and over again you have to do um, if you want to really survive and thrive in the decade ahead. And likewise, if you're an older company, if you want to survive this decade, you've got to transform at least parts of yourself into an exponential org. And so this new playbook breaks this down into what's called having a massive transformative purpose and then five internal and five external attributes. So we talk about those and give the examples. And it's, it's for us, it's about how do we make the world uplift humanity? How do we turn scarcity into abundance? How do we demonetize everything? And this is a chance to really create uh, an extraordinary future. I have a I have a question. I want to get into these starting with the massively transformative purpose. When I read about it in the first book, it was interesting to me. But what's going to happen to entrepreneurs who want to create a soda company or a toothpaste company? Kind of an old school type of entrepreneur. Is that going to not going to exist anymore? No, it, I, we think it absolutely is. It's just that those you're let's say you're selling a soda stream and you're coming up with that idea, right? It's, you can now information enable it, use subscription models or use uh, different approaches for the digital aspect of it. And you can see companies starting to do that. BMW took that horrible step of putting a subscription on the seat heaters in the cars, oh which really didn't go down very well. Because they were creating scarcity rather than tapping into abundance. Exactly. They were trying to they were trying to create scarcity and it and it just doesn't work, especially with the paradigm that I've spent a ton of money for the car. And now you want me to pay for the seat heater that's already built in. Uh, that was kind of a little absurd. But overall, take say uh, autonomous cars, they're they're coming a little bit more slowly than we wanted, but clearly we're going to go to a per kilometer model where some car will pick me up, take me somewhere and and drop me off for some price. Now I don't have to own a car, right? So access versus ownership is a key piece of this this new models. So if people want to build a new model today, they're doing much more of that new model. And a great place to look is what happened to the music industry, where you had six or eight major music studios selling scarcity, selling the cassette, the CD, the DVD. Then we digitized music. Pretty much they all disappeared. Now we have two platforms, iTunes and Spotify, selling you abundance on a subscription model. And we think that kind of uh, transformation is going to happen to education and healthcare and energy and transportation and all the major industries out there. So, okay, I'm an entrepreneur. I'm hearing this. I want to start, uh, this sounds great. I want to start an exponentially growing company. First step is come up with a massively transformative purpose. And yeah, you give great examples of that in the book. What are some more recent examples and, and how do you define that? So we just define an MTP as a, what fundamental problem are you trying to solve? It's the Simon Sinek question of why do you exist, right? You have to be able to answer that question uh, going forward if you want to kind of see, uh, attract people, build a community, et cetera. So the MTP is the most powerful and most important piece of this uh, equation. Um, and once you have that, it gives it tells you how to focus your company during hypergrowth. It becomes really easy for recruiting because everybody wants to join that purpose-driven organization. And it allows you then to, as the as the foundation stone of, of the organization to then focus on that on a nonstop basis as you're building. And Peter, you may have your own thoughts on MTP. Yeah. So a massive transformative purpose as the entrepreneur, as the founder or the founding team. And the company can be the same. It's what you wake up with as your mission. It's what is so big, emotionally charged, that it is a driver. Like, I'm in awe, and I want to create this extraordinary thing. I was just on a Zoom with Tim Ellis, who's the CEO of Relativity Space. It's 3D printing rockets, right? The 3D printing 95% of a rocket. And their big mission is to be able to manufacture anything on the surface of Mars or the moon, including the rockets to get back. And they're starting with 3D printing rockets and it's driven them. And any engineer who's looking to try and uh, do something, people want purpose in life, they want significance. And so, you know, you can go and join Tim Ellis at Relativity and be part of that mission. You can go and join um, Elon at SpaceX and be on a mission to take humanity to Mars. So it's it having an MTP that is compelling and audacious, gets the best employees to come work for you. It gives you a target to shoot for it. Also, one other thing, if I could, James, we're entering a world of a massive abundance of opportunity, more opportunities than ever before, right? I could do this and this and this and these investments and so forth. 
And how do you, in this drowning in abundance of opportunities moment, how do you select what you do and don't do? And your MTP is a filter through which you decide this is in line with MTP, I'm going to do this, this is not, it's amazing, but I'm not going to focus on that. There's an important historical point here where when we put the book together 10 years ago, we actually analyzed 200 of the fastest growing unicorns and said, how are they doing it? How is Ted scaling so quickly using community or Uber tapping into other people's cars, et cetera? And we, ta- we kind of ident- we labeled the model, essentially. We didn't invent anything. We just kind of labeled what people were doing. And, but, and bar none, every single one of them had some fundamental problem that they were trying to solve articulated clearly. Uber, everybody's private driver. Google's obviously is very famous. And we found all of these had something like that in place that allowed them to scale and acted as the anchor for everything. You know what I thought was interesting was use Cisco as a negative example. So Cisco obviously um, is in the category of an exponentially transformative or you know an exponential organization. Like in the 90s, you couldn't get connected to the internet without a Cisco router. So so you mentioned like right. when you're in 1.0, the 1.0 version of your book, uh, they could have had a slogan like connect everybody everywhere. And instead they had some more linear type of description and that became part of their DNA and limited them. So what, what, what was it then? It was like, you know, increased shareholder value and so forth. I mean, who gets excited about that, right? right. Do you get the person to come and work for you instead of Google by, by that mission or by something that is compelling? You know, it's, it's an emotional, MTPs should have an emotional connection. And that's so strong that it can actually tr- build the company. Meaning, you know, that's why Cisco's not as big as Google right now, because from the beginning, their mission statement wasn't transformative enough. They didn't put it in their DNA. Yeah, a great example, even a better example is BlackBerry. Mm. Became hyper successful, but they didn't have that fundamental purpose to keep them to the next level. And over time, people got lost as to what they were trying to do and the whole thing imploded. Yeah, that's a good example. So the MTP is the, the, the key one. I think if it's worth it, we should just describe very quickly the attributes overall in sure. the model. And then we can talk about how to build one. So the, we found all of these had an MTP. Then we found five externalities that these companies were using to scale very quickly. And it allows them to keep a really small feature footprint. And so Uber doesn't hire its own staff. So when it's staff on demand, as much as possible, don't hire employees. Use the external workforce so that you retain maximum flexibility and agility. The second, which is C, which is maps to the acronym scale, is community and crowd. XPRIZE is famous for incentive prizes to into the crowd. TED leverages community and so on. And we found most of these fast-growing organizations had tapped into community or crowd in one way or the other, crowdfunding sites, for example. The A is algorithms and AI and algorithms. Clearly today, if you're not using AI, you're going to be out of business in the next uh, few years. And therefore, artificials, AI, leveraging data science, et cetera, is a key part of that. And if you can make that part of your product even better, the way Google has, et cetera. The fourth one is L, or leveraged assets. Uh, Airbnb tapping into other people's assets. Cloud computing is the quintessential prototype. In fact, we declare the birthplace of the EXO when Amazon Web Services launched and allowed you to take computing off the balance sheet and make it a variable cost. Right? And then companies could scale with the demand rather than having to make a huge investment in fixed cost beforehand. And then the final one is engagement, uh, which is digital marketing techniques and keeping track of your customer, NFTs as a permanent cookie and programmability of your customer base, incentive prizes, gamification techniques, et cetera, that keep you connected in real time with your entire user base. So those are five externalities that these companies use one or more of. Very small feature footprint and scale very fast. Yeah, we'll go through each of these in different. I mean, it's the important realization is that these 10 attributes are the ones that are being used and you could see them clearly used. They all feed into each other and it's what is reinventing how we do business digitally. And I think one of the things I'd be excited about if I were at the beginning of a startup or planning on a startup is how many of these would I incorporate in from the beginning and how would I design my business around it?
I have to say, Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month, I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to, of course, be staying in a very nice Airbnb on the beach. And it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world is available to us now because of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, I always realize, you know, I the home that I left to come to this Airbnb, I could be making money on that right now by hosting and, and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known people, I had a friend who basically, you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there. And it's an e- it can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I remember last year I was asked to go speak at the Norway Business Summit and I was so excited because side by side with the Business Summit was the Norway Chess Summit where I would get to see in person Magnus Carlsen, the best chess player ever, playing chess. But it was four plane rides like to get to the city that ultimately I would go to. So I really did not want to fly for 14 hours. And they, they were willing to pay for everything for me. So I, I at first class. So I didn't want to fly for 14 hours and not be first class. So I had to hurry up and get on the phone immediately to get those first class tickets to a chess tournament in Norway. And listen, this is just like when, you know, you have to know when you want the best of anything, you have to act quickly or someone else will get it instead. And I did not want those seats to fill up. So it's like if you're hiring for your business, you want to find the most talented people for your open roles before the competition scoops them up. I just was talking to a friend this morning where he was trying to decide between some programmers and he waited a little too long and both the programmers he was interviewing took other jobs, like great jobs. So, you know, what's the best way then to hire the best as quickly as possible? ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter finds qualified candidates fast. And right now you could try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Just try it and see. You'll, you'll find out. So ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology takes center stage to identify the top talent for your roles. Immediately after you post your job, ZipRecruiter's smart technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I know this because one time I signed up as an employee, potential employee on ZipRecruiter, and I got nonstop, really, I was, even though obviously I wasn't looking for a job, I love what I do, but I just wanted to see what would happen because they were a, a, a sponsor of my podcast. And the most interesting jobs would pop up in my emails like, hey, you're qualified for this or that. And so it's interesting to see. So just just go there and try it. Try ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Amp up your hiring performance. Now, this is more for if you're hiring, but amp up your hiring performance with ZipRecruiter and find the best fast. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address right now to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. In terms of just understanding, can we just like walk through Uber and see how an exponentially growing company like Uber made use of scale? So as staff on demand, clearly the drivers aren't employees of Uber. They just sort of sign up to be drivers. So that's the staff on demand. That's right. So staff on demand. And let's start with the MTP, which is everybody's private driver. Okay. Right? Everybody should have yeah. a private driver. Everyone. Okay, that's the MTP. That becomes the umbrella mission. Uh, then you have staff on demand. 
Uh, then you have community because the drivers become a community of their own. They're tapping into the crowd by extending this offering into the broader uh, ecosystem. Anybody can sign up to be a driver, et cetera. Uh, then that you move to algorithms, heavy use of algorithms to match driver and passenger and artificial intelligence built deep into the product to match what drivers have the right rating compared to you, who's closest, et cetera. Then they're leveraging up the cars, aren't their own cars, they're leveraging the ownership of other people's cars. Uh, and then finally, engagement is they're engaging with the community in very powerful ways, discounts with American. If you have an Amex card, you get discounts per month, et cetera. And they're keeping the community and the overall broader crowd engaged with in different techniques. So they're using all of those fives in different ways. Plus they're ranking, the drivers are ranking the customers and the customers are ranking the drivers. So there's That's a right. little bit of the gamification. There's that engagement aspect, right? The whole thing is gamified very powerfully. Okay, that's good. Then there's five internal mechanisms, okay? Um, one is interfaces. How do you interface with all those drivers? What's the the technology that you use to do that? The second is dashboards, uh, real-time metric, business metrics. The third is experimentation and risk-taking, which is the whole lean startup kind of thinking of constantly testing assumptions and, and inculcating a culture of risk-taking inside the organization. The fourth one is autonomy, decentralizing decision-making, decentralizing the org structure as much as possible. And then the final one is social technologies like Slack, Yammer, Chatter, Asana, et cetera, to keep heavy collaborative uh, capabilities, peer-to-peer uh, operational capabilities inside the company as much as possible. And that those last five are the internal attributes that map to the acronym IDEAS. And so Uber uses almost all of those in different ways. They're constantly testing different pricing models, the surge pricing test, and they can essentially A-B test on lots of different aspects of the service that they offer. Yeah, and it's, uh, you know, Uber, Airbnb, all these companies. I mean, what are some of the other examples that you've seen since 2014 that have come out of nowhere and been exponential? So uh, I'll, the highest rated one that we ever saw was GitHub, hmm. right? So GitHub is a platform to allow developers to collaborate. And they employ all 11. Uh, their MTP is social coding because you can code much better in a social environment. People look over your shoulder. They've implemented ranking. The most fascinating thing about GitHub is that if you're a software developer in Silicon Valley today, your uh, salary has no bearing on the degree you got the university you went to or the grades you achieved. It's 100% what is your GitHub rating, which is a peer-to-peer -peer meritocracy where people rate your code and you rate other people's code. And so the value of a computer science degree is now essentially zero because uh, your capability of coding is much more determined by your GitHub rating. I knew it when I got that computer science degree that it eventually would be worth nothing. The, well, so think of the skills you have over and above that that are so compelling, right? And I think that's what you can, people can bring to the market in an interesting way. So uh, GitHub was the highest rated, and then Microsoft bought it for like $7.5 billion a few years ago. I remember talking to the accounting partner that was managing this acquisition for Microsoft, and he's freaking out because he's like, what do I put on the balance sheet? They have basically no workforce, they have no assets, and they have no intellectual property. And he's literally trying to kill the deal because he can't figure out how to reconcile this at the balance sheet level. And finally, Satya Nadella just says, you know, just freaking make it work. Because they're really valuing the community. 30 million developers and all the storehouses of uh, millions of lines of code is incredibly powerful. Does GitHub have revenues? Do they have revenues? They do. They offer um, membership models and a freemium model, if I remember right. So James, the, the point here is, and we can talk through each, each of these in, in particular, these attributes, there's a game plan for each of them and they each feed on each other. And again, what Salim said earlier, this is about how do you, you know, in one sense, how do you tap into 8 billion people out there, find those most interested in supporting your business? And that can be in marketing what you do, it can be creating content for what you do, it can be coding for what you do, and turn that crowd into community that are serving you at near zero marginal cost, right? Um, and then how do you uh, actually use AI to gather that data and make it usable? How do you create interfaces that allows the crowd and your community to uh, plug into what you're doing. And all these elements are driving massive return. So over the last 10 years, what we tracked was those companies that are using these attributes that are exponential organizations 
versus those companies that are not, there is about a 40x shareholder return on that. I mean, it's substantially different. Actually, can I talk through this? Because uh, James, with your background, I think this this might be really powerful. So in 2015, we took the Fortune 100 and we ranked them on this model, right? So we scoured, we went through every company, Walmart, uh, Procter & Gamble, and said, to what extent are they purpose-driven? To what extent are they leveraging community? Credit? To what extent are they leveraging algorithm? And we scored them all and we came up with an index. And I did a segment on CNBC Squawk Box presenting this index, essentially measuring the, how purpose-driven, flexible, adaptable, scalable, the org structures of these big companies. And it was a marketing effort, et cetera. We just did a seven-year trailing analysis and said, okay, how did they do? And what we'd done was we tracked the top 10 most flexible and agile companies of the Fortune 100 over seven years and the bottom 10, the least flexible, the least agile, et cetera. And then we compared the results. And it was astounding. The revenue growth of the top 10 compared to the bottom 10 was 3x over those seven years. Profitability, 6.4x. Return on equity, 11 times. But the killer was shareholder returns. CAGR, compounded on your growth rate, was 40x higher for the top 10 compared to the bottom 10. And we literally had to triple check to make sure we had the numbers right because it sounds absurd. So we have very, very clear evidence. And the umbrella thesis is really simple, right? As the external world becomes more volatile, your ability to adapt is going to drive market value. And that's true for any company going forward. Do you uh, publish a regular index? Because obviously this would be useful for investors. We we didn't, and it, frankly, we chose the wrong business model. We should have done nothing but create a hedge fund or index fund out of this. So uh, it's something we'll start doing as we go forward. And how does a company like Walmart though hear all this and say, "Okay, well now we're going to be we're not going to digitize all our information and, and become an exponential company." This is my worry. No one's going to want to start a store. <laughs> well, you don't have to do all of them, right? So, for example. Uh, do they use OKRs internally? Do they tap into community at all? And most of these big companies don't. Do they use algorithms? They better start, right? So uh, we've been, Peter and I have been, almost everything I've done over the last eight to 10 years since the book come out is yell at boards of Fortune 500 companies. And Peter is the same. We've worked with Procter & Gamble, Unilever, TD Ameritrade, Black & Decker, et cetera. One key tool set that we've solved um, is solving what I call the immune system problem. Uh, before doing Singularity and meeting Peter, I was the head of innovation at Yahoo, running their incubator. And I found that the more disruptive an idea we came up with, the less the company could handle it. And the antibodies attack you. Because all big companies are focused on predictability and efficiency. And so we focused on solving this immune system problem. We actually have a 10-week engagement that we run inside a big company that hacks culture at scale. And it shifts the default no answer if you try anything disruptive in the organization to a yes and we've done that 60 times now with big companies. You know, uh, one of the attributes, uh, Selene keeps on saying algorithms, you know, it's AI, which is really the attribute here. We're going to have two kinds of companies at the end of this decade, James, and includes the webcast business as well and the podcast business as well. And it's companies that are fully utilizing AI across every aspect of what they do and companies are out of business. It's going to be that dramatic, right? So it's going to be, you know, AI is not going to put any company out of business. It's going to be another company utilizing AI that's fully, it's going to put you out of business. And so one of the things that we're talking to large corporations and small corporations is how are you building this into every element from engineering to marketing to finance to comms, everything. And it's true across the board here. You know, one of the things, let me just take a second because this can be feel overwhelming for some. You know, the book comes out on June the 6th, it is broken down into a very organized fashion. Like this is what we mean by social technologies or autonomy or experimentation. This is how companies are using it. These are the platforms or apps that you can use to incorporate it into your own company. Here are case studies of companies that are using it successful, right? So it's, it's very, it's, it's meant to be a playbook for companies. In fact, one of the things that we're doing is to make this available as far and wide as possible. So on June the 6th, we're going to be holding a three-hour workshop for free for anybody who wants. You'll get free access to the book. We've also built an AI, which you can talk to the book. We're calling it Ray K in, in honor of Ray Kurzweil. 
And you can talk to the book about your business and ask it questions like, how do I incorporate dashboards or interfaces into my business? This is what I do, who I am, or how would I defend myself against another EXO, or how would I disrupt my competition? And so we're going to do that three-hour workshop, give you access to the AI, give you a free copy of the book. That's on June the 6th. Any listeners who are interested, uh, you can go to diamandis.com slash EXO and register. And for us, it's going to be a chance to help get this model out there. It's about creating efficiency and uplifting the world. How, how did you, just out of curiosity, how did you make the AI for the book? What we, yeah, what we did was we looked at ChatGPT and a few of the other models out there, stability, AI, et cetera, and we merged several of them together. And then we loaded up the entire corpus of the book, all the interviews that we've done, et cetera. So that has a rich content depth to it. We're also going to be loading up 700 case studies that we've uh, put together over the years. And essentially, you can then query the book and say, okay, I'm a shipping company. How would I implement AI? Oh, that's great. Uh, and literally scan all of that and come back to you and go, here's what you need to do. And so we're super excited by that. It's the first living book because a key part of this is we're going to just keep it updated with all the case studies and all the new uh, information that we find, new stats, et cetera. And this will be the first fully living book that you can interact completely interactively with. James, you know how insanely difficult it is to write a book right now on AI or on any of these technologies because it's changing every single day. It's crazy. It's crazy. We've had to rewrite the book three times over the last two years. But here's a question, like, and this is this is related. Like, even starting a company in the AI space, once you start it, you realize there's fifty thousand competitors to it that day that launched, or all the companies that would have been your customers also launched the, that AI. Like, it's almost AI is changing so fast, you almost can't start a company using AI. But you can use it, right? So one of the things that every company has that's uniquely its own is its data. It has its own data, its own set of customers. It's got its unique ecosystem. And what you want to be doing is not necessarily building another AI system, but finding the AI elements um, that will serve you, your data, and your customers. One of the recommendations, for example, that I make in the book in the AI and algorithms chapter is that the traditional companies, even a startup right now, should have what I call a chief AI officer. And your chief AI officer isn't someone creating a large language model or coding um, AI algorithms. It is someone who understands what's out there, who's doing what, how things are changing, and then going and creating partnerships. It's a strategic advisor to the CEO and the leadership team on check this out. Look, let's talk to these partners. Let's utilize this right now. This new version is better. Right, Because exactly you said, it's changing so rapidly that you need somebody who is in the thick of it, watching, learning, consuming constantly. Well, like take what you just said. You took all this data that was your book, basically the case studies, the interviews, the text of the book itself, and you made an AI model so that people can say, hey, I have a shipping company. How can AI help me with my finances, et cetera, et cetera. Why isn't that a business? Like you could take, there's 2 million books out there. You can say, hey, everybody, we'll, we'll make an AI version of your book so anybody can talk to it. You you absolutely could. In fact, um, part of my community is actually setting up their own company to do this, right? You've written a bunch of books. And imagine having instant AI access in a queryable form to all of them. It'd be amazing. Yeah. And then, but but there's no moat because like, Yes, there's no moat. As soon as I as soon as I said that, like, there's ten thousand other companies trying to do that now. Yeah, but the moat is the 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 text of, and the experiences that are unique to your world that are so profound. So, for example, companies that have rich data sets will do very well going forward into the future. So you could take all of your podcasts, right, uh, that you've done, James, and have those digitized, transcribed, and fed into your own AI. I'm doing it. I'll do it eventually for my own podcast, Moonshots, and. It will be something you can query that someone can go and, and learn about. So it's just the way we're going to learn and interact is changing. And it's just the speed is almost inconceivable. And it's getting faster year on year. And it all revolves around the fact that companies now have assets like information or they service information like Dropbox stores information or they dematerialize physical objects and turn them into information. Like you mentioned earlier, Peter, with you could take records and now just digital streams on an app on your phone. And so it's all revolves around 
how quickly can you put things in an information form? Because AI takes information, organizes it in some way, and spits out something that moves the information forward. Yeah, take, for example, your Apple Watch or your Fitbit, right? You have a stream of data coming from that across a very large uh, set of customers, millions of people. And you could create some incredibly prescriptive models for how to operate on that data. Your Fitbit or Apple Watch to say, listen, you're kind of sedentary too long. Based on the data, you need to take a 10-minute walk right now. And that's the kind of thing we expect to see thousands of coming out in this new world. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, now playing only in theaters. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. This episode is brought to you by AARP. Ten years from today, Lisa Schneider will trade in her office job to become the leader of a pack of dogs. As the owner of her own dog rescue, that is. A second act made possible by the reskilling courses Lisa's taking now with AARP to help make sure her income lives as long as she does. And she can finally run with the big dogs. And the small dogs, who just think they're big dogs. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org skills. Okay, so let's say I'm an entrepreneur. What are the first steps I want to start thinking about? So we covered the first one, which is MTP. Number one, what fundamental problem do you want to solve? Is it cure cancer, solve transportation like the Waze guys did, or whatever. Pick that fundamental problem and articulate that statement in an, into an MTP. And, and how do I pick that problem? So for me, this is about an emotional energy. Doing anything big and bold in the world is hard, right? And if you're doing something just to make money, uh, you're likely to fail. You've got to be yeah. doing something because there is a massive emotional energy and desire. And it comes in two forms, either something awe, like, you know, for me, my first 10 companies were all in the space world, driven by my desire to open the space frontier, right? You know, creating zero G and space adventures, International Space University and SEDS and XPRIZE and all of those things were driven by the, I'm going to help open the space frontier. And then there's this, this uh, you know, the other side of the equation is pain. Um, if like, I refuse to let this go on. And for me, the idea that we're going to, you know, get old and die at 85 or 90 or a hundred, it was like, you know, I call bullshit. No, I'm going to fight against the dying of the light. And so all the companies I've been building and investing now a half a billion dollars of capital towards is, is longevity, age reversal. You know, it's, it's basically, I'm going to crush the healthcare system and reinvent it. So there's an emotional energy there because you, you need to connect with that. And it comes from a passion and a purpose. And once you've got that general area, then you're going to, you know, find people who share that passion and purpose with you. And then you're going to start to figure out, okay, um, I'm going to build a community, a crowd, and what is the thing we're going to do that makes a, a massive difference in that area? So it has to begin with that level of emotional energy. Peter's actually built an entire generative AI interaction to help you develop your MTP. So we'll be giving access to that in the workshop. Yeah, so you'll get that when on our three-hour workshop. It uses GPT-4 uh, as an engine to help you find your MTP and then help you create your moonshot and then actually to plan your moonshot. Like what do you have to achieve in not 10 years, but five years, in one year, in the next three months, and what should I be doing right now? What about industries, though, where like let's say biotech, you mentioned cure cancer. So biotech is obviously an exponentially growing industry of which there are many exponential organizations in biotech. But let's say I'm a regular guy. I might not be able to create a biotech, but maybe I can I can create, I guess, a research service about biotech or what are, what other possibilities for me? Yeah, let me let me give you an example. We actually had a guy who was a faculty on at Singularity University originally, who wasn't didn't come from the biotech space, but he loved 
the idea of curing things with all of these new genetic breakthroughs, et cetera. So he formed a company like called Cure Together, where patients could collect into a community and share their conditions and say, I've, I've got this condition, Crohn's disease, this is what I'm trying. And by aggregating data across a large group of patients, they're sharing similar afflictions. They were able to share data in a really powerful way across the board. And so things like that can be done very powerfully, leveraging community. And you don't have to have an expertise in biotech to do that. You're just bringing together the, the entire ecosystem in that way. So there's a lot of ways to play in the space. Right. And so that's how he, he created the staff on demand and the crowd and the community. That's right. That's and right. algorithms for the correct sharing of information, um, leveraging other people's assets, like leveraging their diseases. Exactly. So we'd say, yeah, you've got these symptoms. This guy over here is looking through something and he seems to be a month ahead of you in his treatment process. So you guys connect. Right, so there's a ton of things you can do that are very rich there. Yeah, there's a, listen. Biology and medicine has become a digital science, um, and it's AI is being applied. We're going to see more progress in healthcare and, and biotech from AI than anything else. Um, and so, listen, not every exponential org is going to be using all these attributes. A dear friend of mine, Alex Severankov, who's the CEO of in Silico Medicine, based out of Hong Kong and Dubai. <laughs> talk about an exponential organization, they have built a massive autonomous lab that's driven by AI and robotics that's operating lights out 24-7, meaning there's no humans in the loop. All the experiments are being designed and run by AIs and robotic pipetting and everything going on 24-7, and it will run massive ex uh, parallel experiments, gather the data, and then be able to identify which of the experiments he'd be done next, what's the promising information, and then license that out for you know, drug discovery. So you're going to have companies that use three or four, some will use all 10, but companies that are gonna be successful in this decade are most definitely gonna be fishing out of this pond and assembling these elements. Can I give you, James, an example of a killer one yeah. that we've seen? Just to bring, So there's a company out of China called Guazi, which is, uh, sells used cars. And you look at used cars and you're like, okay, how would I make that 10x better? Like you'd maybe have a better app or better warranties or delivery service. But it's not that obvious how you disrupt it fundamentally. What they do is they show up to somebody that wants to sell a car. They gather 250 data points, video, photographs. They take an audio of the engine and pass it through a machine learning filter. They can detect exactly the quality of the engine by the perturbations in the sound. So they come up with a real-time price for the, what they think the car is worth, show it to the seller, and they say, we'll give you 10% less than this in cash right now. Seller goes, yeah, here. Then they go to somebody who wants to buy a car, and they go, here's the price for my engine. We'll sell it to you for 10% more. That's the model. In seven years, they captured 80% of the used car market in China. 80% from a standing start. They sell 2 million cars a month, right? So you can use new approaches to completely shred old marketplaces. And we're going to see tons of these emerging over the next few years. That's a fascinating example. And what about an example? Sometimes you learn more from examples also that, that fail. So where's something where you see where they maybe had an, they were in an exponential industry, but they didn't quite use your, your methods and they failed. Yeah, tons of failure modes. The failure modes of an EXO are just as strong as the failure modes of any other. It's just that the cost of starting is so low and because you've kept a really small feature footprint and you're constantly testing and iterating, your upside chances are much higher. We'll give you an example. One of our favorite EXOs was Quirky. So if you're a P&G or Unilever, it took about three years to get from new idea to product on sale in a Walmart shelf. Quirky was doing that exact process, new idea, to say, product on sale at Walmart in 29 days. Like unbelievable for that industry, which is, again, a very traditional industry. How are they doing it? They just had an army of inventors suggesting new ideas. They published exactly where the money was going if you bought something, labeled the distributor gets this much, the inventor gets this much, et cetera. Uh, they would go to Walmart and say, here's some ideas we can bring it to market. They had operations in China to manufacture these things. So they could go, they could just cut through every part of the product cycle by 10x. Where they failed was after the first three or four products, uh, ben Kaufman, who's a friend of both Peter's and mine, um, the CEO, got excited and tried to do 50 at the same time. Mm. And basically the thing imploded. 
So the, in that case, uh, over-eagerness really was the, was the problem. But many of these have the traditional failure modes, but you have a stronger chance of success uh, because you're iterating and learning constantly because of the experimentation uh, characteristic. Now, in some of the externalities, you mentioned how the cost of acquisition of a customer has gone to zero, which is which is very important in this digital world because now you could reach people all over the world in, in seconds. But could that potentially create a race to the bottom in marketing where we're all trying to reach 8 billion customers at the same time? I think we're already there, right? Mm -hmm. It's a huge, it's cutting through the signal to noise ratio today in, in marketing is a massive problem for everybody. Do you want to talk about uh, Kevin Kelly's Better Than Free? Yeah, no, this is a really great. So, you know, in 2005, Chris Anderson from Wired Magazine long, of long tail fame wrote a book, Free, positing that as we move to an information age, almost every business model will go to free or freemium type models or ad supported or something. Kevin Kelly read that and then wrote a rebuttal. And the blog post is titled Better Than Free. Hmm. And in this blog post, he identifies eight ways of adding value if the base information is free. Findability, accessibility, personalization are three of them to give you an example. And we think what he's done there is defined and identified the business models of the 21st century, the business models of a digital age. And pretty much every product or service like Airbnb gives you findability. Uh, Google is giving you personalization in many cases, et cetera. And we find that almost all digital business models fit one of those. And we think that's it. We document those in the book. And we basically say, these are the prescriptive ones to follow. Pick one of these and go after it and look at similar ideas that you can take new information sets, bring them to market with this new idea, leveraging community as much as possible. I guess it's very interesting because take something like Tesla. Like people wondered out loud, why did Elon Musk give away all the IP for Tesla for free? It's because he's providing the accessibility to the actual car. He's making the car. It doesn't matter if I have the IP, I'm not going to make the car by myself. Well, he also was creating a standard, and if other people adopt it on charging stations, for example, then it just makes his life easier mm. in that regard, right? And it's been said before, it's not a car he's selling, it's an app with wheels, so to speak, that's upgraded on a regular basis. You know, a few of these things go together, and it's important, like the attributes of, you know, interface and dashboard, experimentation, autonomy. Let me hit on a couple of these things. Experimentation is so critically important and so much easier now than ever before. If you're starting, you know, it says I'm just adamant about the companies I advise and the companies I invest in and I start, you need to have an experimentation mindset from the beginning. You know, in the old way of doing it, it was the expert knew exactly what the right answer was. I call it the tyranny of confidence. They were so confident and they would say, you know, it has to be this color, it has to look like this. And who the hell actually knew? And today you don't need to know, you need to run the experiment. So we have a whole segment in the book on how to write a great, how to run a great experiment, right? Um, interviewed a, a friend of mine, Jeff Holden, who was the chief product officer at Uber and also at, um, at uh, Amazon. Amazon. And he talks about what is a great experiment, what is not a great experiment. We interviewed... Uh, which, Astro Teller. Yeah, Astro Teller, who is the head of Google X, right, who does go through the same process of helping people design experiments. And in order to be running experiments, you need to be willing to fail inside your organization, and you need to give your organization autonomy. Right. Um, and autonomy is the hardest thing for a large scale company to do to say, okay, we're going to flatten out the organization and we're going to give you, you know, the ability to go run whatever experiments you want. In order to do that, in order, and this is how the pieces come together, in order for you to have people in your organization be autonomous, be able to run experiments, there needs to be that clear, massive transformative purpose, that MTP, that guiding North Star. People are running experiments with autonomy to get us there in things that align in that direction. If you didn't have that, you know, all of a sudden people at SpaceX are now trying to create, you know, God knows what, lawnmowers. But at the end of the day, these things all work together. And we, we have now 10 years of data of what works and what doesn't. In, in, to Peter's example, GE did the biggest corporate training exercise in history. They trained 60,000 managers on lean startup thinking and constantly testing assumptions, but they didn't implement autonomy. And so the whole initiative essentially yielded very little because they hadn't given them freedom to think in, and operate by themselves. Right. And so the, the, we're finding over the years the interdependencies and the prerequisites 
to implementing some of these ideas. You need dashboards before you can allow uh, experiments to run, et cetera. And so like, okay, dashboards, can you describe that a little bit more? Yeah, so uh, I'll use an example called Focus at Will, which is streaming music to allow you to focus and put your brain in an alpha state. Will Henshaw, the founder, publishes to all stakeholders, including investors, what's the current acquisition cost of a customer? What's the churn? How many days before an average somebody signs up to before they become a paying customer? What the overall trajectories of growth of the business? And that's published to all external and internal stakeholders, and it's real time. Because if you have an EXO, something goes right or something goes wrong, you want to know as fast as possible. So businesses are now being instrumented, forget quarterly reports, et cetera. They're being instrumented in real time to deliver business metrics to the C-suite. Uh, and then on the inside, we're using the, the idea of tracking team and individual performance, the use of OKRs or objectives and key results. Uh, John Doerr wrote the seminal book called Measure What Matters. Um, and we found that almost all EXOs use that capability and that technique to manage the teams and manage individuals. So that's what we mean by dashboards, internal and in, external and internal dashboards to track the business. When you have dashboards that your team can view, everybody can measure each other's performance, right? You can't hide. You're in charge of this and you're in charge of hitting these numbers. So for example, in my own companies, right, there is a weekly meeting where the dashboards are reviewed. And everybody knows, have they hit, you know, targets for every week and have they hit their numbers? And if they're running experiments, we want to tie the experiments back to the dashboards. Like, did that experiment work? Did it move the needle as you expected? Was it worth it? Or do we kill it? Again, all these things, you know, run together. Google has taken the craziest step. They've made their OKR system internally totally transparent to everybody. So if I'm at Google, I can actually look up any other Google employee's uh, historical performance and what their current objectives are. And that's a huge level of courage of internal transparency. Is that a lot of stress for the employees? Like, oh my gosh, everyone's looking at the fact that I slowed down this week. To some extent, but it also forces people to up their game. And then if I want to work with some other team, I can look up their objectives and make sure we're aligned, hmm. right? So it actually winnows down. It, it makes the internal operations much more efficient because I know exactly who to partner and team up with that are trying to do similar things. You know, James, the whole ethos around an EXO is it's the efficiency and output ultimately per human um, in the organization. And we're going to start to see billion-dollar revenue companies being run by three individuals. Right, you you predict that in the in the book and uh, or in in exponential organizations 2.0, and it's fascinating because I think people are under the assumption, the old school assumption that oh my gosh, if I start a company, I need to raise millions of dollars, and then hire a lot of people, and just all of those assumptions are are wrong now, not necessarily wrong, but you could do it better. Yeah, literally, it's all changed in the last four or five years. Everything has changed in the last four or five years. And it's and therefore, all the precepts we had even 10 years ago are out of date. Uh, and it really, you know, we, we looked at this. One of Peter's friends put out a tweet about this. You'd have a CEO that was also a coder and helping code the AI that held a vision and held the business model, an operations person that made sure all the AI auto GPT type of bots were running effectively, and a product person. And that's pretty much all you need with most online products and services. And then the execution was mostly handled and automatically uh, derived. So again, it's a different world of business coming and it's only accelerating, right? The speed, we're going to, one of the metrics I talk about in my last book, uh, The Future is Faster Than You Think, is we're going to see as much progress in the next decade, uh, James, as we saw in the past century. Right. And it's it's accelerating. There's more capital at work. There's more people connected. There's more access to compute and memory and AI. You know, a friend of mine who's the top 3D printing entrepreneur out there is just showing me what their his machines are making. It's Avi Reichenthal. And it's like, you know, it's 10 times faster and cheaper, mixed use materials, mixed colors. It's insane. And so our manufacturing is becoming bespoke and fast and personalized. Well, what if someone's listening to this and they're thinking and they're getting stressed because they're thinking, boy, I am I'm not going to be able to start an exponentially growing company and am I going to be left behind in all of this? Or I'm not going to be able to be, you know, it's one thing starting one, a lot of people will be employees of one, 
but is there a fear of being left behind somehow? There absolutely is, and there's there's an there's an easy answer. If you think you're going to be left behind, or if you think you're not, you're right, whichever one you pick. Yeah, and, and James, this is the reason we're doing this three hour workshop. Again, I just want to plug it one more time. It's free. You'll get access to the book. The book is a step by step playbook. You'll get access to the AI again for free. Come and join us. It's June the sixth. If you're hearing this podcast after June the sixth. I'm sure you'll get a recording, but if you join us on June 6th, it's live and you can interact with us on this. And we're going to walk through in a much more methodical phase what to do, how to implement each one of these attributes. If you're a large corporation, how to think about these attributes because you need to be. Um, and just go to diamandis.com slash EXO, register and this is where you know my massive transformative purpose, my personal one, is to inspire and guide entrepreneurs to create a hopeful, compelling, and abundant future for humanity. And this is directly in line with my MTP. It's where I get my joy. And just to touch on that last point, James, there's a whole section right at the end of the book on mindsets because your mindset is so critical for whatever you're going to do in the future. And Peter, do you want to touch on that for a second? Yeah, sure. So if I ask you the question, and I, I do this with entrepreneurs and CEOs and whomever, I say, if you looked at the most successful people on the planet, you know, the Steve Jobs, Elon Musk, Mahatma Gandhi, you know, Martin Luther King, whatever leader you want, and you said, what made them successful? Was it the money they had? Was it the technology they had, the friends they had, or was it their mindset? Um, you know, everybody agrees it's their mindset, right? The way that they handled opportunity, or failure or problems is your mindset. It's the neural net you have, 100 billion neurons in your brain, that's your neural net. And so if mindset is the most important thing you have, then the question is what mindset do you have? Where did you get it? And what mindset do you need to have for the decade ahead? Either as a mom, a dad, an entrepreneur, a CEO, what is the mindset? So in the book, and this is a lot of the work that I'm doing, I focus in with Salim on a number of core mindsets, a curiosity mindset being fundamentally critical, right? Ask great questions. An abundance mindset that we're living in a world where instead of if you have friends coming over and you have to slice your pie into thinner and thinner slices because there are more mouths to feed, no, no, we're just going to bake more pies, right? It's our ability to use technology to create more and more of what everything, including time, we can get to that if you want, you know, an exponential mindset, you know, how 30 doublings is a billion times faster. A moonshot mindset of going 10 times bigger in the world, which is everyone else is going 10%, and then ultimately a gratitude mindset. And, and these mindsets are core for being a great leader. So we close the book on these mindsets, again, how to think about them, what to be doing. I think that's critical because like when you said how you, you have a personal massively transformative purpose, I think everybody needs that kind of personal MTP. Yeah, it drives me. It, dri right. it it helps me decide what I do and don't do. So I get just super pumped about with Salim, how do we help? I mean, we're going to have a huge audience from around the world on this three-hour training. It's like, let's help people make the world a better place. Let's give them the tools to understand how they use their capital and their intelligence. We all are given one thing in common, 8 billion people. We're all given... 24 hours in a day, seven days in a week, 365 in a year. I don't care who you are. That's what you got. And it's how you use that time that matters more than anything else. So let's help people use that time. Well, I mean, I'm so excited for version 2.0 of the book. I was a fan and am a fan of the version that came out in 2014, Exponential Organizations, learned so much from it. And now you're going to have the book 2.0 coming out June 6th. You have the seminar. D-I-A-M-A-N-D-I-S.com, diamandis.com slash E-X-O. And you can register there June the 6th. It goes from 8 a.m. to 11 a.m. Pacific time. Uh, so it's over the lunch in, in uh, East Coast and over dinner in Europe. Well, it sounds really exciting. Good luck on all of these things. And I'm excited. Once again, Peter, you've excited me about the next decade. Last decade, you excited me about the decade we just had. Now I'm excited for the next decade. <laughs> See all this exponential stuff happening. Thank you, buddy. So really critical for every entrepreneur. There's so many opportunities. But it honestly, 
it's too many opportunities. It's difficult to navigate. And so hopefully your, your seminar and book will, will give a, a kind of guide to navigating all this, whether you're an employee, an entrepreneur, or a customer of, of all these technologies. Yeah. It's, uh, it is, for me, it's the most exciting time ever to be alive. So what are you going to do with all of this power that you have? How are you going to make the world a better place? How are you going to make a dent in the universe? That's our conversation. Yeah. We know we have a dozen technologies now accelerating, and this is now about how do you organize all of that for building ventures in the 21st century, whether it's a company or a nonprofit or a government department or an impact project. We think all organizations will be designed along this model over time. How would you advise a government, like let's say a city government, how would you advise them to th think in this way? In fact, we've we've actually implemented this approach into several governments, most notably Miami. So a lot of the buzz around Miami is we helped transform public sector a few years ago and how they thought about the world. It turned out, I've met several government and heads of state. It turns out there's about three dozen heads of state around the world that are using the book to organize our governments. The Minister of Oceans for Mauritius, for example, pinged me and said, um, we have an ocean the size of the, uh, the U.S. almost to monitor, and we're a small archipelago. So we've had to use this approach, leveraging community, drawing in all the fishermen to be observers of the uncharted waters, et cetera, and bringing it all together in dashboards uh, to ma just manage ourselves. Because governments have a natural MTP, which is serving the citizenry. Right. And so we think uh, more and more over time. So we're doing planning actually three books. This is the reference book elaborating on the model itself. The second book will be on companies and big companies and how do you transform a big company. And the third one will be on governments and society and how do you implement this model into social structures and our institutions, which have very little of a feedback loop to update themselves. It's great. Well, again, Exponential Organizations 2.0. Join them June 6th, com slash EXO. June 6, 8 a.m. Pacific time. Looking forward to it. I'll be attending that myself. So I hope you guys do a great job and I'm sure you will. But thanks once again for coming on the podcast. It's really exciting stuff. Thank you, James, for sharing this. Thanks for having us. Definitely. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve with the help of T-Mobile for Business. Our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions.